This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Short History of England by G. K. Chesterton Chapter 18 Conclusion In so small a book on so large a matter, finished hastily enough amid the necessities of an enormous national crisis, it would be absurd to pretend to have achieved proportion. But I will confess to some attempt to correct a disproportion. We talk of historical perspective, but I rather fancy there is too much perspective in history. For perspective makes a giant a pygmy, and a pygmy a giant. The past is a giant foreshortened with his feet towards us, and sometimes the feet are of clay. We see too much, merely the sunset of the Middle Ages, even when we admire its colors, and the study of a man like Napoleon is too often that of the last phase. So there is a spirit that thinks it reasonable to deal in detail with old Serum, and would think it ridiculous to deal in detail with the use of Serum, or which erects in Kensington Gardens a golden monument to Albert, larger than anybody has ever erected to Alfred. English history is misread, especially, I think, because the crisis is missed. It is usually put about the period of the Stuarts, and many of the memorials of our past seem to suffer from the same visitation as the memorial of Mr. Dick. But though the story of the Stuarts was a tragedy, I think it was also an epilogue. I make the guess, for it can be no more, that the change really came with the fall of Richard II, following on his failure to use medieval despotism in the interests of medieval democracy. England, like the other nations of Christendom, had been created not so much by the death of the ancient civilization as by its escape from death, or by its refusal to die. Medieval civilization had arisen out of the resistance to the barbarians to the naked barbarianism from the north and the more subtle barbarianism from the east. It increased in liberties and local government under kings who controlled the wider things of war and taxation, and in the peasant war of the fourteenth century in England, the king and the populace came for a moment into conscious alliance. They both found that a third thing was already too strong for them. That third thing was the aristocracy and it captured and called itself the Parliament. The House of Commons, as its name implies, had primarily consisted of plain men summoned by the king like jurymen, but it soon became a very special jury. It became, for good or evil, a great organ of government, surviving the church, the monarchy, and the mob. It did many great, and not a few good things. It created what we call the British Empire, it created something which was really far more valuable, a new and natural sort of aristocracy, more humane and even humanitarian than most of the aristocracies of the world. It had sufficient sense of the instincts of the people, at least until lately, to respect the liberty and especially the laughter that had become almost the religion of the race. But in doing all this, it deliberately did two other things which it thought a natural part of its policy, 
it took the side of the Protestants, and then, partly as a consequence, it took the side of the Germans, until very lately most intelligent Englishmen were quite honestly convinced that in both he was taking the side of progress against decay. The question which many of them are now inevitably asking themselves, and would ask whether I asked it or no, is whether it did not rather take the side of barbarianism against civilization. At least, if there be anything valid in my own vision of these things, we have returned to an origin, and we are back in the war with the barbarians. It falls as naturally for me that the Englishman and the Frenchman should be on the same side, as that Alfred and Ebbo should be on the same side, in that black century when the barbarians wasted Wessex and besieged Paris. But there are now perhaps less certain tests of the spiritual as distinct from the material victory of civilization. Ideas are more mixed, or complicated by fine shades, or covered by fine names. And whether the retreating savage leaves behind him the soul of savagery like a sickness in the air, I myself should judge primarily by one political and moral test. The soul of savagery is slavery. Under all its mask of machinery and instruction, the German regimentation of the poor was the relapse of barbarians into slavery. I can see no escape from it ourselves in the ruts of our present reforms. But only by doing what the medievals did after the other barbarian defeat, beginning by guilds and small independent groups, gradually to restore the personal property of the poor and the personal freedom of the family. If the English really attempt that, the English have at least shown in the war to anyone who doubted it that they have not lost the courage and capacity of their fathers, and can carry it through if they will. If they do not do so, if they continue to move only with the dead momentum of the social discipline which we learnt from Germany, there is nothing before us but what Mr. Belloc, the discoverer of this great sociological drift, has called the servile state. And there are moods in which a man, considering that conclusion of our story, is half inclined to wish that the wave of Teutonic barbarism had washed out us and our armies together, and that the world should never know anything more of the last of the English except that they died for liberty. The End of Chapter 18 The End of A Short History of England